Our sermon text this morning is from Genesis 41. We're going to look at most of the chapter in pieces, but I'll read uh, and you'll follow along with me verses 1 through 16. As you heard in Doug's reading, um, chapter 40 ends with these words, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And our sermon text this morning begins with these words, after two whole years. Mm, That's tough. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, Genesis 41, verses 1 through 16. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep again and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for this account in the life of Joseph and really the whole known world at the time this morning from Genesis 41. Lord, as David Kessler prayed already, your sovereign hand is all over this story. And you have something for us in it. I pray that we would see it. The power of the Holy Spirit would move in this place this morning, that lives would be changed, eyes would be open, and hearts would be given to Jesus Christ. We pray it in His name. Amen. Please be seated. As of today, I want you to think about the most dangerous moment in your life. It might be an accident you had or a diagnosis that could have gone either way. 
Perhaps it was some close call. Maybe it was a decision that you almost made or didn't make. What has been the most dangerous moment in your life? If you can't think of one, first of all, bless you. But second of all, don't worry. I'm going to offer a possibility. What has been the most dangerous moment of your life? I want you to hold that thought for just a few minutes as we work through a few of the verses from this account in Joseph's life. In verses 17 through 24, Pharaoh recounts to Joseph these two dreams. In the first dream, the seven plump, attractive cows, they come up out of the Nile, they start eating peacefully in the reed grass, and then seven thin, emaciated cows come out of the river. You would think no match for plump, attractive cows. But something happens to Pharaoh's slumbering surprise, the thin cows eat the plump cows. We won't recount all the details, but look at verse 19. Pharaoh adds a couple of things in these next few verses. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And as before, Pharaoh says that these thin, emaciated cows, they eat the plump, attractive cows. And then he adds this in verse 21. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then Pharaoh tells Joseph the other dream, the one about the seven good ears of grain and the seven empty ears. And Pharaoh has had two dreams, and he expects two interpretations. But Joseph responds in verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And in verse 32, Joseph makes it plainer. He says, the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. God gave Pharaoh two dreams to solidify in his heart, this thing is going to happen. And what exactly is that? Look at verse 26. Here Joseph interprets the dreams. The text reads, The seven good cows are seven years And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. In short, hunger is coming. Hunger and death. And it will be so bad, no one will even remember the seven years of plenty. They will vanish from memory like consumed cattle. Hunger is coming. Death is coming. But Joseph sees an opportunity here. Whether God puts it directly into Joseph's heart and mind or if it's just a natural response from his God-given leadership impulse that we've already seen, we don't know. Regardless, Joseph sees a solution for the impending 
devastation. God has been gracious and he has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Here is Joseph's suggested solution. Look in your text at verse 33. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep them. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through famine. And that proposal leads to Joseph's most dangerous moment. Let's recount for a second. Joseph has been assaulted by his own brothers, thrown into a pit and left for dead dangerous, sold into slavery in Egypt, dangerous, falsely accused of a capital offense, thrown into prison, dangerous, and now called before the most powerful man in the world to interpret a dream. And it better be right. Dangerous. All dangerous events and situations, they pale in comparison to what comes next. Look at verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so as discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves at your command. Only as regards the throne will I, Pharaoh, be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Friends, 47 minutes ago, Joseph was in prison. (laughs) And now he's just been made the second highest ruler in Egypt. Talk about a meteoric rise to fame. And it was fame. Fame and honor. Look at verse 42. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, that is Joseph, bow the knee, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. This, my friends, was the most dangerous thing to ever happen to Joseph. Really? Yes, really. Joseph's own people had rejected him, but the pagan king had praised him. His brothers had stripped him of his robe. Pharaoh had clothed him in fine linen, put a ring on his finger and a golden chain around his neck. Pharaoh had established Joseph in a place of honor to sit at his right hand and have dominion such that every knee Every knee, save one, in Egypt would bow before Joseph. And later we read that Pharaoh gives Joseph a royal Egyptian bride. Everything his own people had denied him, Pharaoh gave to Joseph. Wealth beyond measure, vocational purpose, fame and notoriety with the masses... And more important, probably, respect and position with the movers and shakers 
and a family to boot. Joseph is in a very dangerous place. I imagine Joseph holding up two snow globes. I know he's in Egypt. Just go with me on this. Two snow globes. One shows his great-grandfather Abraham being buried next to his bride Sarah in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephraim the Hittite east of Mamre in the land of Canaan. The tomb is shut, the mourners walk away, and as the snow finally settles to the bottom of the globe, there's just the tomb. The tomb and a promise. The other snow globe is bright. The flurries swirl around with brilliant excitement, and in it, a far different scene. The great pyramids of Egypt rise out of the sand. Joseph wears the finest clothes. All the world comes to him for food, their very lives on the line. Joseph is hailed as the savior of the world. Monuments are built in his honor. His children and their children after them live in the finest homes and dine on the choicest fare. And as Joseph looks into this globe, the flurries never fall and rest. The vision seems endlessly prosperous. Sure, the famine comes, but after it's over, no name will be greater than his. Friends, Joseph is in a very dangerous place. He's in a place where he could easily forget the God who caused that meteoric rise, placed the words of prophecy in his mouth, and gave him favor providentially in the eyes of Pharaoh. Joseph is in danger of being satisfied in the gifts of God at the expense of intimacy with God. Of trading the promise of a future glory for a far lesser present glory. Do we know what he chose? I think we do. You see, the seven years of plenty, they did come. God's word was true. Joseph's reputation grew even more. And Joseph's plan worked even better than expected. Verse 49 says, Joseph stored up grain in such abundance they could not measure it. The accountants couldn't figure out how much grain they had. The barns were busting. There was grain to the full, to the full, to the full. And then something happens. We get a glimpse into the heart of Joseph. Look at verse 50. Before the year of famine came, before it came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 
Did you see what happened there? I missed it last week. <clears throat> I was listening to a sermon about Vadi Bakum this week. Preach, he was preaching on this very passage, and he showed me something I had not seen. He pointed this out. Joseph had an Egyptian position, Egyptian fame, Egyptian wealth, an Egyptian wife, and now Pharaoh had even given him an Egyptian name. But not his sons. Joseph gave his sons Hebrew names. I believe this is the first indication of which the snow, we know that which snow globe Joseph has put on the shelf and which one he has shattered. And the second indication is the name of his second son. Embedded in that name is the idea that Egypt, even with all the success God had given him there, remains to Joseph a land of affliction. Why? Why does Joseph still see Egypt as a land of affliction? Because he longs for the promised land. And at the end of his life, Joseph removes all doubt. I'm jumping ahead, but I feel I must. Genesis 50, 24 reads, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. I believe before the famine even came, Joseph had made up his mind. No matter what Egypt had to offer, he belonged with his people. The whisper of the promise still lingered in his heart. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Joseph stared down the riches of Egypt, the temptation to be satisfied with what the world had to offer, his most dangerous moment, and he said, take my bones out of this place when you go. Joseph had a hunger for God that no good thing in Egypt could satisfy. And after all he had been through, the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still the baseline of his heart's desire. And that leads me to us. What is our most dangerous moment? It's the same, actually. And I know what some of you are thinking. What do you mean it's the same? My story didn't turn out like Joseph's story. I've been through hell and I'm still in it. And I don't sense any sort of meteoric rise in my future. Well, let me ask you this. Would it have been enough for you? The position, the authority, the praise, the wealth, the notoriety, the security, the independence. Would that have been enough for you? I think if we're honest, some of us would have to say, yeah, that's really all I want. You see, it's a heart issue regardless of circumstance. 
Whether you ever achieve those things and find yourself satisfied with them, doubtful, or if you spend your whole life pursuing them but never have a single moment of pure satiation, the condition of the heart is the same. I want God's benefits. I don't want God. That's our most dangerous moment. Not the near head-on collision, the touch-and-go moment of a serious surgery, a risky financial moment. No, the most dangerous moment of your life is when either through the success of your life or the denial of it, you take the dread choice to give yourself to be satisfied with fleeting pleasures of this world. You see, Joseph faced that moment and he gave his children Hebrew names. He called Egypt the land of affliction and he told his brothers to take his bones out of that place when they left. Not because the blessings weren't wonderful. They were. But because he had a hunger in his soul they could never satisfy. And he knew it. He knew it. And often we don't. But there is hope for us. There is hope for hungry souls and souls who haven't even started to hunger yet. To see it, we have to finish this story. You see, the thing that gave Joseph clarity in his most dangerous moment was that he remembered the promise. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, and in short order, they would be. You see, at the end of the seven years of abundance, God's word was true again, and the seven years of famine did come. And they were every bit as devastating as God had warned Pharaoh they would be. Look at verse 55. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in all the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to, Joseph, to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the moment for Joseph. The payoff, the vindication against the naysayers and the scoffers. And just like the immeasurable piles of grain Joseph had amassed, his fame in this moment was beyond comprehension. All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph by name for what? To live. There was only one name in the whole world by which men could live. Joseph controlled the blessing of the storehouse. The famine had hit the whole world. Hunger beyond measure. Hunger unto death. Fear. Uncertainty. But there was bread in Egypt. And I think Joseph gave glory to God for what he saw. Joseph saw his story as a subplot in God's story. You see, that's the key, really. Whether in plenty or in want, to set your life in the context of what God is doing. 
The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians 4. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul is plugged into the story God was writing through Jesus Christ. Joseph is plugged into the story that God is writing in his world. If you don't keep your eyes on God, if you don't view your own life, your own story in the context of the promise of God, abundance will drive you to pride and need will drive you to despair. And at whatever moment in your life, because many times of abundance and many times of need are going to come, and you will be tossed to and fro on the waves of pride and despair. Pride and despair. Joseph got off the ship. He saw his life in the context of what God was doing. All of the need, all of the struggle, and now all of this blessing and abundance. It only had meaning to him in the context of what God was doing. And that's why I believe in this moment, as the masses flocked to Egypt for life-giving bread, at the very hands and ingenuity and providence of Joseph and providence of God, Joseph's response was not, look at me. It was, look at what God has done. Look at the God who brings fruit in a land of affliction. I mean, I make a good sandwich. I put it all over Facebook. Look what I did. Joseph feeds the whole world. He says, look what God did. And his story was so much more enriching. It was Joseph's commitment to God's story that allowed him to truly enjoy this moment. To see his life be used of God to save the world. A great joy was set before Joseph that day. The faithfulness of Yahweh playing out before his very eyes. The people needed bread and God delivered. And that wasn't the last time he did that. There's this little town just south of Jerusalem, whose name means house of bread. In English, we call it Bethlehem. You see, we needed bread and God delivered. The famine of sin had devastated the whole world and it brought eternal death. But God, in his love, provided bread in Bethlehem, the house of bread. It's so familiar to us we can miss it. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting, abundant, eternal life. The people needed bread, and God delivered. Jesus said, For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Physical bread is vital to life. Through it, Joseph saved the whole world. And yet he said, get my bones on the way out. This morning, Jesus offers you something far better. He offers you real, abundant, eternal life. And in the last 2,000 years, untold millions have feasted on the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, and been truly satisfied. Hebrews 12.2 says that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. What is that joy? It's at least in part, Jesus saw you and me and these untold millions feasting on him and being truly satisfied. And he knew the cross was the only way to make it a reality. And to him, that was a great, great joy. But you know, even with all the abundance of life-giving bread that Joseph provided, there were some who still died in their need. Do you know who they were? The cynics. They had the same need as everyone else. And the word came to them, there's bread in Egypt. God sent his servant ahead. You won't believe this. God has sent his servant ahead to endure trials of many kinds, to secure and store bread for us before we even needed it. And now the storehouses are open for business. Come with us. But the cynics replied, you gullible fool. You believe that? And as if they were rolling the stones in front of their own graves... They turned around, they shut their doors, and they died in their need. You see, there was no other bread. There was only one name in the whole world where life might be saved. All authority in Egypt had been given to Joseph, and he alone had the life-giving bread. But the cynic hears the news and chooses his own demise. If you are here this morning and you've heard this gospel a thousand times, I'm pleading with you, hear me again. I don't remember who said it right now, but there is nothing more dangerous than the regular handling of holy things. This bread and cup, this word, these songs, week in and week out you come But you say, you gullible fool, you believe that? There is bread here, and you are starving. Only here in Jesus Christ, the Bible says there is only one name under all heaven whereby men must be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. Hear this call now again from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money 
on that which is not bread and your labor for that which will never satisfy you. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. One of my favorite hymns says this, Why was I made to hear the voice and enter while there's room? Listen, when thousands, thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. No other bread can satisfy your need. If you've closed the door on the messenger a thousand times, let it be different today. As David prayed, let this be the day of salvation. Don't make that wretched choice and rather die in your sin than come to Jesus Christ. Listen, this could be your most dangerous moment. Because there may not be a 1,000 and first time. You don't know if you will have your chance to slam that door one more time. This very night, your soul might be demanded of you. But in love, in love, Jesus Christ calls out to you and says, Whoever comes to me will never hunger. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. His body is true food. His blood is true drink. Come to Jesus Christ with us and live. Let's pray. Father, this morning you have laid before us the very bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who keeps slamming the door, stick your foot in the door and let them hear one more time that there is bread here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.